Welcome to Trinity. We're a church family learning how to follow Jesus in the city of Nottingham. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. Well, good morning. I'm afraid, um, unlike the advertising, uh, it's just me this morning. Uh, Amy was Amy was with the ladies at the orchard yesterday morning. Anyone at the orchard local? I, I think it. I was going to say descended. I think the, the meeting ascended into a dance-off. <laughs> Extraordinary moments, um, and I think you feel that in the worship this morning. So, um, Amy's given me this one. Uh, uh, so. But just a thank you to start with, uh, thank you so much for praying for us this morning. I didn't know that was going to happen, but clearly in, in my spirit I did because I wore a tie uh, this morning. Uh, if any of you are wondering, why is he wearing a tie? Just because. Some, t- some days you wake up and you just think, I want to wear a tie today. So that's what I'm doing. Uh, second thank you would simply be um, just for your engagement in the last five or so weeks that we've been Uh, looking into this next season of our life as a church. We certainly haven't wanted to make this a a sort of self-referencing exercise where we talk about the church and how great the church is and all that kind of stuff. And um, I don't think we've done that, but the way that you have uh, stepped in has been a real joy to us. Thank you so much for the energy, the attention that you've brought to this. Uh, I, I feel something has shifted. I mean, if you, if you ask me kind of what do I observe, uh, there is, a, I think, an increased hunger uh, in the place. I think that's manifesting itself in a whole series of different ways. But we would just thank you for your, your willingness and your engagement. Uh, it's, it is a grace for us, that is to say, an undeserved gift that we have the opportunity to be involved in this congregation. So I say to people often, if we weren't leading this church, I'd still want to be part of this church. This is the best church I've ever been a part of. So, and that's you guys. We are just graced um, to have any role in this place, let alone to be in some leadership here. So I'd like to pray, and then we're going to jump in to 1 Samuel 14. Father God, here we are, at the end of a a road, but many ways, just at the beginning of a new path, an unknown path, cut before us, up a mountain, and who knows where else. We present ourselves to you again, as we did at at the beginning of this journey many years ago, Unskilled, uh, but willing. There are more with us now, God, than there were then, but we pray that the same thing that has carried us from the beginning to now, your presence would be ever with us. We welcome you, Jesus, shepherd of the sheep, true and only shepherd of the sheep. Come and lead us, your people, into the future that you have for us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, this this last vision sermon uh, comes in a moment of great uncertainty for us as human beings, as British human beings particularly perhaps, but just as human beings. Many of you will have been following on your news cycles Uh, all that's been happening in the world. We're seeing uh, floods and torrents in Florida. You'll have probably seen the the latest in Ukraine, Putin's illegal annexation of Ukrainian territory, and we question, don't we, what's going to come as a result of that. You will know that just a couple of days your energy bills have risen. If you didn't, uh, give your energy reading in the night before they did. Uh, you'll be feeling perhaps some regret as I say that. <clears throat> and we don't know what's to come when it comes to energy. Uh, and you will also know probably that uh, we have a new prime minister and a chancellor. And perhaps the less said about that, the better. He's not supposed to talk about politics. <laughs> now, uncertainty is not a rarity in human life. 
I think there is a sense in which, at the moment, what we're waking up to is not a new normal, but the normal that has always been. Uh, We've lived, I think, through a a, a small period of uh, almost unparalleled stability in the world. And since since the Second World War, and I think what we're actually coming up against now is the way that the world has always been. And if you don't believe me, I would, I would encourage you to read the Bible. <laughs> and what you'll find there is, is, the st- is the stories of both heroes and villains whose lives are beset by uncertainty, by the unknown. And the journey of faith has never been an invitation into certainty. In fact, the only thing Jesus promises that we'll get on top of what other people get is less certainty and some persecution in addition to what other people experience. So the gospel is not the offer to a group of people who have it together already that if we follow Jesus, we'll be happy. That even that we'll follow Jesus, we will be happier. Jesus never uses those exact Words And when he does talk about happiness, I grant you in Matthew, blessed, makarios, happy are those. The list of things which come after the declaration of happiness are not necessarily things that we would often choose to seek. The poor in spirit, the grieving, the mourning. We are, whatever else the church, the institution of the church, its leaders and Christians themselves, whatever else we are seeking to do here, It should include, it has to include preparing disciples of Jesus to live faithfully in the world as it really is, not as we wish it was. And that means in a world in which war is breaking out and energy prices are spiraling and inflation is threatening, our pension pots and perhaps even our mental health. And to do that, to live in that way faithfully as we pursue the renewal of all things. That is the mission of the church. And so today as we close this vision journey, I want to speak about what it might mean to trust God and to live in that way in a time of great uncertainty. And somehow at the end of this, I'm going to make this into a giving sermon. So join with me as we explore how exactly that might happen. And again, we find our story, don't we, on a mountain. Now, I promise, I promise that at least until the end of the year, we will not use the word mountain again in a sermon. And I won't be preaching many of these sermons from here on in, so that's a burden on the others. But what we read, I don't actually promise to take that back. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side, but he did not tell his father. Okay, what we find in uh, this text in 1 Samuel 14, if you've got a Bible, you might want to open it, is a situation of ruin for the people of God. It is a profoundly uncertain moment. Well, maybe it's one of those moments that's so uncertain it's actually certain. Uh, what, What befalls them seems almost certain, in fact. It's certain ruin, certain defeat. The only thing that's really uncertain is how exactly they're going to be overcome and overrun by the Philistine army. Saul, if you look in the chapter before this, Saul has got himself into uh, hot water with God, hot water with the prophet Samuel, because he'd made a sacrifice unlawfully. He wouldn't wait, and so in his, in, in his impatience, he transgressed upon the authority that God had given him. He stepped out of the kingly authority into the priestly authority, and he broke the command of God in that way. And so there is a, 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 a word that is given to him from God through Samuel that you, you will no longer be king. And uh, we hear that as he's rejected, of, he's rejected as king, that God will search for a man after his own heart to be king. That begins to take us into the next part of the story, which is hidden from us here, which has to do with David. And I encourage you to read that story. So we've got the fall of a leader, the first sort of element of the, uh, f- the, the trouble that Israel is facing. The second thing is a wider context of being oppressed by a dominant power that in this case is the Philistine army. 
Israel is on the back foot at this point. Now, we don't read this in our reading today, but what the Philistines have done as the oppressing power is to outlaw the use of blacksmiths. Not a problem for you and I today. If blacksmith, if Timpson shuts, we'd manage. We'd manage, wouldn't we, if Timpson, are they the closest thing to black? Timpsons aren't a blacksmith. They're a cobbler. Well, it was the best I could do. <laughs> he doesn't know anything. The blacksmiths have been out, outlawed, which means that the Israelites have no swords or spears. Instead, they're using, in this, in this war against the Philistines, they've brought along their farming equipment. And the farming equipment is unsharpened. There they are, you know, with their sort of a hoe uh, in their hand and a sickle and goodness knows what else. Blunt. Because they're priced out of doing so. The cost of, of visiting a, a Philistine blacksmith was two-thirds of a monthly wage. And they're facing a battle as well as this. They're facing a battle on three fronts. And they're outmanned with, they only have 600 men to fight this, this battle. In short, they're oppressed and outmatched. The king has been deposed. They're facing great uncertainty. Nobody would expect an Israelite victory in such a situation. The only thing that is certain in this uncertainty is defeat. And yet, because we've read the story, we know that's not what happens. Well, what does happen? How is it that God brings about a victory? And hear me right, before I begin, before I begin to talk about Jonathan and his armor bearer, God is the one here that brings about this victory. How is it that this takes place? It is the offering, as David would say later, of broken and contrite hearts that God does not despise. One day, Jonathan's son, uh, son of Saul said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Come, let's go over to the Philistines. The first step in this overcoming of this uh, uh, oppressive force is simply one man and his armor bearer's speculative foray into, what a word, foray, a speculative foray into the unknown. A venture out into the great unknown. That's how it begins. Jonathan's behavior here, his courageous act to declare that uh, he and his armor bearer should step out, out of their relative safety and security with the 600 others. To step out of that into the unknown. To approach danger. Not to flee from it, but to, to go into the jaws of danger itself. That first step in that behavior is not unlike that of King David, who later, and only chapters later, takes on Goliath, armed with only a sling and a few pesky stones, offering himself wholeheartedly in his vulnerability. Maybe this is why Jonathan and David got on so well. Because actually they had the same spirit, the same heart, the same courageous willingness to step beyond the possible into God's impossible. And somehow, and I don't know how this works, but somehow this attracts God's favor in heaven. You know, he loves this attitude. He loves it when unskilled and ordinary people who have been with Jesus step out. He loves it when people who have not step into uh, their have-notness and wait for him to act. God, as scripture said, God resists the proud. He embraces the humble. That's why he loves the poor so much. He's attracted to people who don't have. He's attracted to people who've come to the end of their rope. He's attracted to people who are at the end of themselves. He prefers that attitude. He resists pride. He re Let me put that in a... Because none of us are proud, are we? Let me put this in a, a phrase that we would understand. God resists self-sufficiency. He resists it. He dislikes it. It, it appalls him. He 
He likes weakness. He loves weakness. He loves vulnerability. And so Jonathan steps into that place and he takes his armor bearer. Now his armor bearer is not just somebody to hold his sword and his shield. This is a military apprentice. Somebody who'd been with Jonathan in all that he does. And they step out. Verse 4, on each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Senna. I'm making up how to pronounce these things, but nobody knows any better. There is a, a, a pass here and there is a cliff. They have, to, they have to pass this area. The territory, the terrain is difficult. Not only do they have to overcome the Philistines, they also have to overcome this difficult terrain. This is a rocky area with very steep cliffs. This presents as difficult terrain always does. Both a challenge and an opportunity. Difficult surroundings, difficult things before us, all the things that we're facing you need to understand for the people of God. There is always hidden both a challenge and an opportunity. And we have to be able to seize both. Jonathan somehow is able to seize both. Now the opportunity here, the challenge is because he's got to climb this thing and it's not easy to climb a cliff. In the end when he does it, he does it on his hands and feet. But the opportunity is that this offers him a place where a prospective raiding party might be able to remain hidden. He can scour the rock. The opportunity is to be hidden from the Philistines. Tough terrain always offers both. And so Jonathan and his armor bearer approach the Philistines together. Jonathan says then, verse 6 now, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come let's go over to the outpost of these uncircumcised men. This, this is a repetition of really what he said in verse 1. Come let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But this time, he's got more to lose. I don't know if you ever played knock or door run as a kid. You probably didn't. You're too well behaved, but I did. I was a scally in South Manchester. Scally, as we used to say. And we would uh, go to our friends. or uh, if, Well, sometimes we'd do it with our friends' houses. Other times, if we were feeling really naughty, we would go to an unknown person's house and one of us would approach a door, knock a door, and then we would leg it. When you saw somebody in the front room, there was always a little bit more riding on it. This is the moment where Jonathan in his armor bearer sees somebody in the front room. Come, let us go over to the garrison. Let us go over to where we actually see them to be. Let us now approach them. Or probably do 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 do. Listen to what he says next. Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Perhaps. Perhaps. If I'm going to approach the Philistine garrison, folks. I'm going to need more than perhaps. <laughs> and so will you. I'm going to offer my life to you, Jesus. I'm going to need some confidence. Can you give me an assurance? Can you give me a guarantee? Guilt-edged guarantee for those of you interested in the financial markets. I want government guilt. Sorry, I did. I want something sure and certain. Don't give me perhaps. If I'm Jonathan's armor bearer, I'm turning to him and saying, Jonathan, is all you've got perhaps? Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. But don't hear that perhaps as a lack of confidence in God. What is not in question for, for Jonathan is God's ability. Listen to what he says now. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. In other words, Jonathan has a confidence. Look, whatever, God's going to figure this out. Now, he may use two of us. 
or it may use the 600 folks over there, God will act. Because God's own honor is at stake. So here Jonathan reminds himself that God owes him nothing. But he is willing to stake his whole life on the basis that God may use them, just perhaps to defend his own honor. Now this is so significant, I can barely overstate it. Here we have a man whose own father has just been rejected as king, showing a willingness to risk his own life for the honor of God. Jonathan should be the one to inherit the kingdom, surely. But he considers that as nothing and is willing to stake his everything on and for God's honor. A son willing to give everything for the honor of his father in heaven. Does that remind you of anyone? And then we hear this unforgettable line. Turns out the armor bearer doesn't have the heart of this Jonathan. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead. I am with you heart and soul. What a beautiful thing to say. You're looking for a friend. Somebody to join a few with. If you hear that line, sign them up. That's a good friend. The armor bearer says, look, I I don't know what's going to happen. Your perhaps is a bit less than I'd hoped. But if you're going, I'm going. I'm with you. Heart and soul and body as well. And I'll carry your kit. A more complete statement of devotion cannot be easily found in Scripture. Wherever Jonathan is going, this, this one's going as well. We see this in Ruth, don't we? We're going to be doing a series on Ruth soon. Wherever you go, I'll go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. This is the spirit. This is the heart of devotion and discipleship. Now, I'm not going to go into the rest in detail, but what we find is that Jonathan and his armor bearer approach. Jonathan sets a test. To use the language of Gideon, he sets a fleece, if you like. He is invited by the Philistines to go up, and go up he does, and everyone falls before him. There is one line, though, which is precious. But if they say, come up to us and we will climb up, because this will be the sign that God's given them into our hands. The men of the outpost shouted out, uh, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, here it is, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. The Lord has given is the exact meaning of Jonathan's name. In acting in this way, Jonathan is living up, stepping in to the true calling on his life. He is living out the meaning of his name, the meaning of his identity. I love this story. I love this story because it's heroic. You know, if they were retelling the story of the Lord of the Rings, uh, this could fit. This is a heroic and beautiful picture. And I know it's not about us. I know this is a story to the people of Israel. I know it's specifically uh, speaking about particular people in a particular time and a particular place. It's not about us, but it is for us. It does say something to us, something simple and powerful about how God acts to move for and through his people in situations where they're overcome, in moments of great uncertainty, in moments of lack, in moments of want. This is how God acts. And and the reason I'm so confident of that, because this is how God acts throughout the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament. This is how God acts. God acts through the weak ones. He acts through Gideon. He shows up to Gideon and says, mighty man of valor. And Gideon says, who else is in the room? Because I'm the least of the least of the least. And God says, no, you're the one. Go with the strength that you have and take on the Midianite army. This is how God acts to Mary. God shows up to Mary, a a teenager, says, look, I've got a plan for you. And she offers her weakness and her willingness, and he does the most extraordinary thing through her. This is how God acts. When we offer the fullness of who we are, he inhabits that. He uses that. It is heroic, but it's simple. It doesn't really feel heroic. It feels weak. 
Do you know, most of discipleship doesn't feel heroic, it feels weak. Most of following Jesus feels like weakness. And this situation is much like the situation the church faces in these days. We are seemingly overwhelmed by the forces we face. We are desperate to help those around us who are facing into this uncertainty with us, but we're seemingly outgunned and outmanned. There are fewer with us than there used to be. We seem to be lacking the tools for the job. You know, where are the blacksmiths these days? We've been asking that question. We have fewer swords and spears, and the old tools don't seem to be working in the same way, perhaps. A litany of leaders falling around us. Now, whether they're political leaders, whether they're spiritual leaders, it is not a good time for leaders, and yet, this seems to be exactly the kind of moment where God might choose to act to restore his glory. Because perhaps we're at last willing to recognize that we don't have what it takes to overcome the enemy on our own. Perhaps we're actually willing to realize for a moment that there is really an enemy. You know, one of the things which has distressed me and continues to distress me in my own discipleship is is honestly the shallowness of my understanding about spiritual realities. I'm probably not alone. I think it's in moments like this where we see global leaders acting in just the most extraordinary demonic way that we begin to understand. There really are powers and principalities arrayed against the flourishing of creation. What is needed then? Well, new patterns of worship, catchier songs, clever strategies, better leaders. Smoke machines, a better social media presence, or maybe we do what some of the American churches do and raffle a car to get people to church. And I'm not kidding, that happens. No, we just simply need people who will offer themselves wholeheartedly to God in their weakness. People who will say, I'm, I'm with you, heart and soul. Now, just to be clear, I'm not talking about offering people, are you offering your heart to me or to Amy? I'm not talking about you offering your heart to this church or to this vision. I'm talking about you offering your heart to the only one who can be certain to keep it safe, Jesus. Jonathan in this story is the Christ figure. He's the type of Christ. And we are, we're to take the journey, the armor bearer. That's all we are. Will we carry Christ's armor? That's the job. Brings to mind Ephesians 6, doesn't it? Will we climb this mountain with Jesus, leaving behind the safety, that it's not even real safety, the perceived safety and security beneath? That is the question you are being asked this month. Are you with him? Not are you with me, not are you with Amy, not are you with Trinity. Are you with him? Heart and soul. There is one who climbed a mountain on our behalf, carrying a cross with him as he did. And there were very few who stayed with him. In climbing that mountain, he became victorious over sin and death. And he led captives in his train. We were the captives, and we've been set free. And it is ours now to follow him, weeping and mourning, in weakness, in brokenness. And as we do, he leads us on. That is the triumphal procession. That is the way the kingdom comes. Through suffering love. That's how it happens. What might we see if we do? Well, Dare to believe that God might begin to deliver us from the oppression and from those around us from the oppression that we have lived under. Listen to this. This is a word from a good friend of ours. I know he's listening to the service, actually, because he just gave me some direction for my sermon. (laughs) This is from Steve, who many of you met on our weekend away. Prophetic word for this church uh, this week. Steve was praying, he felt God say these words, I will release my power into those streets, little children. 
and you will be the ones who carry it for, my, for me. I will put my power into your uplifted hands as you walk out of the building, of this building of yours, and into my streets, as you confuse all that traffic, as you get in the way of all this monstrous activity, as you make a nuisance of yourself with laughter that cannot be silenced by the vanquished foe or any of his associates. I will release my power into your hands, little children. As you raise them to me, it is a threefold power that I put into your hands. A threefold power to heal the wounds that our enemy has afflicted upon this land. You will send the enemy running with the worship of my name. Clearing the skies and bringing all my churches together with shouts of triumph. You will speak the truth into darkness, bringing all the towers of his great lie crashing to the ground. You'll release so many captives that you won't have room for them in all your buildings put together. You'll have to turn the whole city into a cathedral for me. And it still won't be large enough. Can you believe that? You will heal their wounds. I will pour my power to heal into your hands and it will feel like fire. You won't be able to bear the heat. You'll touch every leper you see and watch their leprosies run in terror like rats to their dens. You won't be able to stop once you feel my power flow out from your hands. Now you must stand up, little children. You asked for a new thing, and here it is. I'm taking away those comfortable chairs and moving you outside. I'm giving you two options. You can sit on the concrete and mourn your lost comfort. Or you can carry my comfort to the people who I have gathered here in Nottingham. To the nations who've settled here like wind-borne seeds among the trash and broken glass of your vacant lots. I could do this without you, you beloved ones, but I won't rob you of your joy. Not even if you beg me to send surrogates. I will be with you and I will be in you. And I will work through you but I will do nothing without you. I will put the work in your hands as you raise them in worship. I will put the work in your hands and you will pour it out with joy. I will put the work in your hands and you will do marvelous things for my children. You will send your children to the ends of the earth and they will kindle the fire that brings the bride from her chamber. Do you hear me, little children? Do you see what I'm doing? If my word finds a home in your hearts, If my voice is a voice you recognize, then do not delay. Do not wait for anyone else to lead you. Just go. Trust the one who brought you here to bring you forth with power and joy. Trust the one who brought you here to bring you home victorious over all his enemies, even death. Church, the victory has already been won. Christ has already climbed the mountain. He has stricken the Philistine army. All we, his armor bearers, need do is stay close to him. That's a sermon. Now there's another sermon. We'll keep this really brief. Heart and soul devotion is what we're talking about. See, I actually began at the the beginning of the week to write a giving sermon. And then I read the text and I was like, oh, it's too good. I simply want to say to you that one of the key ways that we play our part in this vision and one of the key pieces of evidence for the fact that we're living heart and soul devoted is that we are generous with our finance. That's, to me, that's self-evident. That doesn't need a whole lot of sort of analysis. But if we're kind to the poor, we lend to the Lord. That's in the Bible. There's just an openness that is the evidence and the fruit of, of discipleship. So I just want to, Amy, do you want to join me for this bit or, or not? I'm going to crack on. I want to give you five reasons really quickly. I, I'm, I'm not actually going to evidence these. I have a, a whole bunch of information about why these are true, but I, I don't want to t- spend the time doing that. I want to hear from uh, a couple of people who are going to interview. The first, wh- why would we give? Well, I, I, one reason I would say is, as I've just said, really, which is this is the way we evidence wholeheartedness. You know, to be wholehearted is to withhold nothing. Withhold nothing. And so that includes our finance. The first reason, and that's, I think this is the one we've touched on this, this month, is that one of the reasons we give is because we long to fulfill the vision. This is the least important reason. 
Of all the reasons we're about to share, it's the least important reason, but it is true that we don't receive, this, this congregation, we don't receive money from outside. Rarely that does happen, but for the most part, uh, the resource and the work of this church is, is something that is dependent upon what we ourselves, inclusive of all of us, is giving. So we give to fulfill this vision. Now this is the way the church has always been. Uh, I had a beautiful quote, which we're probably not going to now share. But the earliest church gave in this way, from the earliest, earliest moments. And the money was put in a chest, and the, the leaders would, would use it for the ministry of the church and for dispersing it to the poor. And that's always been the case. The, in the Old Testament, we see that the people of God giving as a baseline the first tenth. And it went to worship. It went to worship. It was all part of what the church did and the people of God have done through history. So that's the first reason. Give to fulfill the vision. Secondly, we give because we know and we understand that all we have belongs to God. I just want to say that really clearly. We are not asking you to consider giving your money. Our perception of it is that you don't have any money. God has lots of money and you're stewarding it and I'm stewarding it for a period, for a season, It belongs to him, it's his. We're asking you to prayerfully consider what the Spirit of God is asking you as a steward for a given time to give of what he has given to you. We're stewards, not owners. By the way, this is true of every single aspect of our lives. Your body is yours to steward. It's not your right, it is yours to steward for a season and your relationships, and your friendships, and so on and so forth. So that's the second thing. Thirdly, we give because we want to be free. Do you know that mammon, money, is the only rival God that Jesus names? If you want a a lesser authority than Jesus, Martin Luther said that a man must undergo two conversions, the first of his heart, the second of his pocketbook. It is true. It is true. The evidence of the first conversion is often when we see the second. If you are withholding finance, I would humbly say to you that your, the fullness of God's freedom over finance has not yet reached your house. And we become free when we unpick the burden of that God. When we push against it, and the way to do that is in generosity. Now that will include generosity much beyond the walls of the church. But let me say, in my, in my pastoral experience, the most generous people in the church are also the most gener- generous people outside of it. That's been my experience. Fourthly, we give because it's how we grow. Connected to that third idea of freedom, But actually what we find is we grow most when we give most. This is true in every area of our lives, isn't it? When we give something, we grow. It's when we let go that we grow. We open our hands and God actually is then able to fill our hands with better things. That's how it's always worked for me. Not just in the area of finance, but it has also worked in that way. And what God is often able to give us back may be more provision. I'm going to hear a story like that this morning. But there's also other stuff. Intimacy, a presence. And if we don't give, we might get stuck at a certain place of trust. Finally, we give as an expression of love. The highest reason for giving is actually love. Love made me do it. I want you to hear hear this very clearly. Giving in this church is entirely voluntary. That is why I do not know what anyone gives in this church except for Amy and I. I actually don't know if Amy knows what we give in this church. (laughs) Interesting question for our lunchtime. But I don't know what you give. It's, It's not relevant. It's not a piece of information I need to know. Don't do this for me. The final reason I think we give the highest calling is to give out of love. We see, don't we? People uh, breaking alabaster jars and pouring them over Jesus. You know, why would somebody do that? Well, the only answer to that question could be this. Love made me do it. So, we're going to hear a couple of stories of giving, and then we're going to give. And I realize 
Uh, we are running slightly on. So, Raf, would you come and join me? Can we welcome Rafi? Okay, Rafi, that one's yours. So hold it like you would an ice cream on the beach. Yeah, absolutely. Lick it. If that's going to be comforting to you, also lick it. Um, good. Rafi, how long have you been at Trinity? Since the beginning, when we were at your house and there was paint everywhere. Yeah. Uh, so are you responsible for some of those marks on the wall? No. That's the right answer. Well done, Rafi. Good. Now, a few years ago, we had a giving campaign, and we, had a, we actually had a wedding list of, of sorts, or a gift list, didn't we, on our website. And um, we had a moment like this, and we asked folks to consider what they might want to give. And what happened? Well, it was over a dinner, really. We just looked through the list. What can we get? I saw, hmm, train set. I want to play with that. <laughs> so, so what did you do? So parents won't give it, then... Where else do you get the money from? Your own savings. <laughs> so you buy it yourself, and then you come here and play it. So, so what? So, what did you do with your savings? How much had you saved? Thirty-six pounds. Yeah. How did you got that money? Two years of birthday money and Christmas and savings. So it's in your piggy bank. And what did you yeah. do then? You 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 said to your mum and dad you wanted to give that. Yeah. 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 And what happened then? What what was next? Well. Obviously, I think it was at Trinity, but I didn't actually play with it that often at all. It was just oh there. Well, we must go downstairs and find it, Rafi. <laughs> it's, it's, it's famous. So, uh, are you glad that you did it? Where else do you get return investment? Yeah, well, where, and what was, tell us about the return in investment. Well, a few weeks later, I got £50 How? in an envelope when um, someone had written... Um, a card and then sent it to our house it seems and in that was a card and in that card there was £50 of money from, and I think it was in the card it said you can never outgive God amazing thank you Rafi thanks for sharing that I'll give him a round of applause amazing I'd like to invite Dave and Lynn. Uh, Dave and Lynn are going to come and share also. Can we welcome them? Now, David, don't lick the microphone. Rafi's licked it. Um, you're going to start, I think. I was just going to ask you, Dave, uh, how did your giving journey begin? Uh, wow, just to say, most people here that know us know that we're not upfront people. We're behind the scenes, so we are here reluctantly. Very reluctantly, actually, Extremely David. Extremely reluctantly, yes. And the cost you. But no, we, we became Christians in 96. Uh, we used to go to the Christian Centre um, where we learnt about tithing and giving, tithing and um, offerings. Uh, we learned that it wasn't tithing or offerings, it's tithing and offerings. Um, and what is a tithe? Well, we've heard from Johnny what a tithe is. Uh, Lynn, to be fair, was straight on the page. She knew what a tithe was. Um, but I, it took me a number of years. I used to think that tithing was net of tax, net what used to come in, because I, I couldn't give what I gave to the taxman. But it was years later that I realised that the tithe was the whole tithe. Um, you would say, I mean, Johnny referenced earlier that, you know, the problems that we have in the world today. Um, very briefly, you know, in the early, in the mid to late 70s, we had an oil crisis. We had house prices doubling in a few years. Um, we had to get credit card out to, to last each month. Um, and we weren't Christians then, so... You guys have God with you, so it, whatever happens, it will be a lot easier. Um, one thing I do know um, in, in terms of giving, uh, the wise man from Christian Centre did say in one, one sermon that God will do more with your 90% than what you can do with your 100%. Mm. So I, I would just encourage you, I, I would urge you, if you're not giving to this place you call home, start however you see a tithe 
whether it's before tax, after tax, after you've saved for your holiday, after you've had your cup of coffee each day, 13 a month, 16 a month, whatever, start to give. You will be blessed. And for those that do understand giving, um, I would just remind you about the Bible. Um, offerings we can talk to God about, but tithing is the base, base level. And it says in Malachi, um, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Not part of it, not some of it. Bring the whole tithe. And, I, and, and test me. It's the only time in the Bible where God says, test me. So I would encourage you, test him. And he will, as the scripture says, and we can say in our lives, he will open the storehouses of heaven mm. and you won't be able to contain it. It will overflow. Then why don't you share a bit about what it's been like from your perspective and what have you learned, what's God done for you? Um, well, as those that know me and Dave know that we're wired so totally different. And for me... Um, Right at the start of my Christian walk, I knew, because I knew, because I knew that absolutely everything that we have, everything that we own, everything that we are, is a gift from God. It is. And whether or not it's water in the tap, or whether it's food in the fridge, or whether it's our friends, our family, our house, our income, it's all God's. And, I mean, John has preached on it this morning, I thought, not really a lot to say, because he's just said it. But it is all God's, and... I think what we've just learned to do is hold on to it lightly and, and not to hold on to it lightly, just to hold on to it lightly and to go before God. And our biggest thing is, is, is to try to be obedient and is to find his will, seek his face and to say, Lord, what do you want to do? What do you want to do with our time? What do you want to do with our home? What do you want to do with our finances? And Johnny says, it's not ours, it's not ours. How can we do anything we, we can't do anything to give back to God but we can release and not hold on tightly and say God your will be done amazing can we thank these guys do you want to say anything I'll just give two two quick examples I do remember the very first time when we became Christians in 96 there was an offering can't remember what the appeal was but um in our marriage together, we've always sort of come within a very close figure. Whenever there's been an offering, we've always hit it pretty much bang on. And the first time, um, it was 300 quid. And I was like shocked, because that, in, it's a lot of money now, it was a lot of money then. But we gave the 300 pounds, that's the figure that Lynn had. Um, I didn't really have a figure at that time. Um, but three weeks later, and I can't remember the actual, I can remember the actual amount, it was £330 came back in a cheque, either from the insurance or a tax rebate, um, can't quite remember. And then more recently here, um, there was an, uh, an offering, I think it was something to do with the building, um, and up until that point we'd always had pretty similar figures in our heads of what to give as an offering, bearing in mind tithes is a given. That's the basic. Um, so there was this appeal, and, and God gave me a, f a figure in my head, I believed. Uh, quite a substantial figure. But then immediately, he said, no, Dave, it's double. And I thought, bloody heck. You know, um, <laughs> I thought my first go was a decent figure. So um, I thought, it's not a problem, because I know Lynn will bail me out, because she always gets close to my first figure. Anyway, I said to Lynn, what, what do you believe God's saying to you? And straight away she said, the double figure. <laughs> so I would just encourage you guys and families, seek God's heart, yeah. listen to God, and listen to your wife. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, very good advice for life there. Uh, we're going to respond. Neil, would you come and, and lead us? We're just going to take a moment uh, just to consider prayerfully what God might be asking of us. I, God loves, uh, Paul writes in Corinth, to the church in Corinth, God loves a cheerful giver. The word for cheerful there is the word from which we get the word hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. And so you, there are, I think there are, on the seats there are some um, envelopes. If you'd like to fill one of those out now. Uh, then you are welcome, you are free to do that. Um, 
just, I would love you to consider what is God asking you? Not, not what you think uh, you should do. What might God be asking you for? And there could be a, a regular gift that you've just been called to step into for the first time or to maybe raise uh, the level of money that you're giving as a standing order. And then there may be also some who say, no, there's also an offering to bring today. So let's just have a few moments in quiet or the, as Neil leads us. I'm just going to consider. Father, we, we simply want to hear and obey. And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, speak clearly to us. And I pray that you would lead us into a deeper and a greater tide of generosity than what we have known. For the sake of our freedom and your glory. Thank you, Lord.